Let us pray. This is a prayer for schools and colleges. O eternal God, bless all schools, colleges, and universities that they may be lively centers for sound learning, new discovery, and the pursuit of wisdom, and grant that those who teach and those who learn may find you to be the source of all truth. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, <clears throat> I, uh, I have a brief scripture reading before we start. This is, uh, yeah, hey, uh, this is um, from John chapter 4. This is right after Jesus speaks with the woman of Samaria. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Um, and, and hopefully I'll circle back to why I chose that if I don't remind me, um, because it doesn't, it's not at first obvious, but hopefully it will be by the end. Um, I want to talk about commencement speeches, or you might call them uh, commencement addresses, graduation speeches. Uh, for the most part, the uh, the topic I'm interested in is college commencement speeches, although you'll see them in other institutions like high school as well, particularly uh, people who come as a keynote speaker when they receive an honorary doctorate. This is kind of funny, but that's probably a high school student, um, so it really has very little <laughs> to do with what I want to talk about, and usually the thing I put up there at first has very little to do with what I want to talk about, actually. Um, but when you think of uh, commencement speeches, like what comes to mind? Have you all sat through some before? What was that like for you? What, and what comes to mind when I just say commencement speeches? Tedious. Tedious? How so? Long. Long. And repetitive. Repetitive. Anyone else? It's a hard task. Hard task. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't see that. Make up your bed every day. Make up your bed. I think I heard about that. Who was that? McCraven. So Navy Admiral McCraven went viral last year. I think I heard about it. Yeah. Yeah. A reflection on philosophy or ideal about life. It was more of a practical kind of living life. Yeah, and actually the title I gave to this is on commencement speeches, but I could have called it, maybe I'll call it next week, anti-commencement speeches. But actually this week I want to set the stage, and but and so next week I'm really going to be interested in anti-communion speeches, which are the sort of atypical, although we'll watch a scene from one uh, today. Any other thoughts, uh, things that come to mind? What got you interested in that as a subject? <laughs> yeah, well, I, so I'll, yeah, I, I'll, I was going to give you a little bit of my thoughts, um, so I'll just go ahead and do that. But um, I'm I'm increasingly interested, though I have been for several years, but more and more so in the idea that what I'm usually up against as a theologian, as a teacher and preacher, is not necessarily bad doctrine, th- theologically speaking, in terms of Christianity in terms of like having to do some heavy lifting to get people to new understandings about Christianity, the thing that I'm usually up against most are the things that the world says that are out there that aren't necessarily religious, um, the sort of theologies of the world. And commencement speeches are kind of like sermons. 
Um, they're almost structured like a secular sermon. Um, and 90 some odd percent of them, I think, are long on what we could say is the law or little l laws of the world and very short on any sort of good news, any messages of grace. It's usually, you know, what are some cliches that people say at commencement speeches? Can you think of any? Follow your heart. Look inside of yourself. You think of any other ones? Um, you know, I mean, they're probably saying the same thing with just different kind of anecdotes and personalities. And, um, you know, someone who's just uh, finishing school, so it's this sort of transitional moment of life. That's why they're called commence. You know, you're commencing a new um, era of life. And so what people think they need to do is give a lot of advice. Um, and what's that like for you, you know, when someone stands in front of a room and gives you a lot of advice? I don't know about you, but I usually kind of tune out. <laughs> um, and so that's why I'm interested um, in the subject matter. And yet there sometimes are a, a, a one, maybe two each year that are just stellar home runs. And it comes from often the most unlikely source. Uh, and so I'll bring a couple in, um, one today and uh, maybe a couple next week. Um, and so if we study commencement speeches, it'll hopefully make us um, skeptical, not only of that genre, but of things that are similar, um, where people are kind of espousing what often looks like basically bad theology, even though it's sort of it's secular. Uh, and so uh, what I want to do is acquaint you with, and maybe you already are, but if you aren't, uh, this is a good opportunity to uh, equate you with something theological that is helpful for understanding what I'm talking about, which is a, a distinction uh, that Martin Luther made um, between what you could call a theology of glory and a theology of the cross. And a Lutheran um, theologian named Gerhard Ferdi, who's now uh, gone to glory, wrote this book called On Being a Theologian of the Cross, Reflections on Luther's Heidelberg Disputation, 1518. Has anybody read this, by the way? Uh, three of you. Okay. Great. So the majority haven't. Um, and it's, you know, it's a, it's a short book. Let's look, you know, in terms of text, 115 pages, yet it's very dense. It took me like kind of two times to read it to really let it sink in. And so what I'm interested in doing with uh, Faraday's sort of exposition of what Luther uh, wrote in this uh, book on being a theologian of the cross is, giving, is showing what he's telling with sort of world examples out there. And so we won't necessarily be watching theologians, and yet there are things that we'll see here that are helpful for understanding a distinction of a theology of, the, of glory on the one hand and a theology of the cross on the other. And so I've handed out some excerpts from his book. Uh, can you look at the page that says 16 on the one side? Sorry, I kind of did a bad co uh, copy job here. But on page 16, he sets uh, this distinction up. And uh, where that bracket is in the second paragraph there, in talking about a theology of, the, of glory, he says this. It operates on the assumption that what we need is optimistic encouragement some flattery, some positive thinking, some support to build our self-esteem. 
Theologically speaking, it operates on the assumption that we are not seriously addicted to sin and that our improvement is both necessary and possible. We need a little boost in our desire to do good works. Of course, our uh, theologian of glory may well grant that we uh, need the help of grace. The only dispute usually will be about the degree of grace needed. If we are, quote, liberal, we will opt for less grace and tend to define it as some kind of moral persuasion or spiritual encouragement. If we are more, quote, conservative and speak even of the depth of human sin, we will tend to escalate the degree of grace needed to the utmost. But the hallmark of a theology of glory is that it will always consider grace as something of a supplement to whatever is left of human will and power. And so what I want to posit to you is that those 90 some odd percent of commencement speeches that are tedious and chock full of advice uh, to some 22 year olds and um, their parents or grandparents usually is a theology of glory, even though it doesn't realize it, even though it's not necessarily through a Christian lens. I basically believe that the truth of the cross exists and everything around it that isn't true is theology of glory. That's basically my paradigm for understanding life. And so let me, yeah, yeah, go ahead. I hate to interrupt. Yeah. Can you define glory in this context? Yeah, and so this, you know, that's a confusing word because we often talk about God's glory. And so I can see how it's it's difficult to wrap one's mind around um, how he uses the word isn't necessarily the same. But glorification may be here for uh, humans, uh, you know, a higher view of uh, human capability um, than, say, the Bible has. What you need, as he says, is some optimistic encouragement some flattery, some positive thinking, some support. Um, uh, and so that's where uh, the, the word glory is used. Uh, you could think of strength or victory, maybe are good, um, um, what do you call them, uh, synonyms. But let's look at theologians of the cross. If you go over to page 17 where my new bracket is, and I, what I'm going to posit here is that those minority reports and really good commencement speeches basically look like theologians of the cross, even though they might not be using Christian language. Theologians of the cross, however, operate quite differently. They operate on the assumption that there uh, must be, to use the language of treatment for addicts, a, quote, bottoming out of an intervention or an intervention. That is to say, there is no cure for the addict on his own. In theological terms, we must come to confess that we are addicted to sin, addicted to self, whatever form that may take, pious or impious. So theologians of the cross know that we can't be helped by optimistic appeals to glory, strength, wisdom, positive thinking, and so forth, because those things are themselves the problem. The truth must be spoken. To repeat Luther again, the thirst for glory or power or wisdom is never satisfied, even by the acquisition of it. We always want more, precisely so that we can declare independence from God. Uh, the thirst is for the absolute independence of the self, and that is sin. Okay, I realize that uh, this is um, a bit heady, or maybe it isn't for you, especially if you've read it before. Maybe you kind of get this stuff. But don't get bogged down know that I'm just at least trying to set up a, a distinction for you, a black and white distinction that's helpful for understanding how uh, people often articulate the way the world works. And, um, and so where we often see this uh, 
coming to bear is with commencement speeches. I want to show, before we look at two commencement speeches, I want to show a short clip, a video, a cartoon that has nothing to do with commencement speeches, but I think it's helpful for understanding the distinction a little better. And so this is a, um, a, a video uh, where uh, Brene Brown, who's sort of a pop psychologist, is an excerpt from a talk she gave that someone mapped onto it, this uh, animation. <laughs> Um, but and, I, and just because I put this up here doesn't mean I fully endorse everything Brene Brown does, but I think that this is good, okay? Um, and I think that's true of everyone, including you. <laughs> that just because I like something that you do doesn't mean I endorse everything you do. Um, and I know that some people kind of don't always like Brene Brown, so that's why I say it. Um, but uh, there are three cartoon characters in here. Um, and uh, two of them that come to the help of the one that's really sad. One is a theologian of glory, and one is a theologian of the cross. And hopefully you'll be able uh, to see that. And what she gives a distinction of between sympathy and empathy. And you could say that empathy is like the theology of the cross, and sympathy is like theology of glory. <laughs> And why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's, a, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions, where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth, staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, I'm down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. At least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection.
Okay. Uh, if you flip to the other side of that handout, I just want to, in response to what we just watched, say something that... Um, Uh, if you look on the page 71 there, there's this sort of like table that sets up that uh, sort of distinction. And you could even almost just write, you know, sympathy above the theologian of glory and empathy above the theologian of the cross. Uh, and he, he goes through this kind of statement of the one, two, three, four. And I'm most interested in the bottom line, number four on each one, that a theologian of glory, uh, by seeing through, uh, let's see, a theologian of glory calls evil good and good evil. <laughs> um, often we're calling things that are bad good and things that are good bad in the world. And on the other hand, the theologian of the cross says what a thing is exactly. Um, uh, of all the theses in the book, they're like 30-something. Uh, that's the one that always sticks with me. Um, and we'll watch uh, one commencement speech. Uh, and I want to say that the, the empathy and sympathy thing does come in because the people are giving the speech and you think this is a, a, a high moment for people. They're graduating. Things are going well. But actually what you've got in front of you are thousands of people who are actually suffering. Um, you know, they're about to start having to pay student loans back. They've got to find a job. They don't know where they're going to live. Probably their parents' basement. Um, they're probably going through uh, emotional distress with relationships, both with friends and, um, you know, their girlfriend or boyfriend that, you know, maybe got a job in Scranton and, you know, you're going back to Birmingham. Um, and, uh, and so um, that connection is really helpful. Um, but often these speeches don't connect. Um, uh, they, uh, they silver lining things. Um, as she says, a, a silver lining it, uh, and therefore it, there's a there's a disconnection, and that's why they feel tedious. They actually feel longer that they than they are. You know, sometimes you'll listen to a speech that's 10 minutes and nobody's connecting, and it feels longer than it actually is. But if you listen to a speech that's 30 minutes and someone's connecting, it didn't feel as long. Am I right? Have you ever been there before? And so I think that that's what's kind of going on, both theologically and emotionally. What I want to play for you is, uh, this is from 2013. Oprah Winfrey gave the address at Harvard University. And the reason why I chose her is to start the stage. Uh, and by the way, I'm calling her a theologian of glory. And maybe you're a fan, but I think she's up there with Joel Olstein. I'm sorry to burst your bubble. Um, <laughs> that's what I think. <laughs> um, and maybe you disagree. But to set the stage, uh, I, I'm bringing her in because uh, people know her. And she spoke at Harvard. That's a big deal. And this was just a couple years ago, 2013, so two years ago. I'm skipping the first, like, 20 minutes and just giving you the last, like, eight minutes or so, okay, where she kind of starts to bring things together. Um, uh, and... Uh, You'll be able to tolerate the ambiguity, I hope, despite what you've missed. Let's see, I gotta go to. And for our success as a nation, there has to be some way that this darkness can be banished with light, says the man whose little boy was massacred on just an ordinary Friday in December. 
So whether you call it soul or spirit or higher self, intelligence, there is, I know this, there is a light inside each of you, all of us, that illuminates your very human beingness, if you let it. And as a young girl from rural Mississippi, I learned long ago that being myself was much easier than pretending to be Barbara Walters. Although when I first started, because I had Barbara in my head, I would try to sit like Barbara, talk like Barbara, move like Barbara. And then one night I was on the news, reading the news, and I called Canada, Canada. And uh, that was the end of me being Barbara. I cracked myself up on TV, couldn't stop laughing, and my real personality came through. And I figured out, oh gee, I can be a much better Oprah than I can be a pretend Barbara. I know that I know that you all might have a little anxiety now and hesitation about leaving the comfort of college and putting those Harvard credentials to the test. But no matter what challenges or setbacks or disappointments you may encounter along the way, you will find true success and happiness if you have only one goal. There really is only one, and that is this, to fulfill the highest, most truthful expression of yourself as a human being. You want to max out your humanity by using your energy to lift yourself up, your family, and the people around you. Theologian Howard Thurman said it best. He said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and then go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. The world needs people like Michael Stolzenberg from Fort Lauderdale. When Michael was just eight years old, Michael nearly died from a bacterial infection that cost him both of his hands and both of his feet. And in an instant, this vibrant little boy became a quadruple amputee, and his life was changed forever. But in losing who he once was, Michael discovered who he wanted to be. He refused to sit in that wheelchair all day and feel sorry for himself. So with prosthetics, he learned to walk and run and play again. He joined his middle school lacrosse team. And last month when he learned that so many victims of the Boston Marathon bombing would become new amputees, Michael decided to banish that darkness with light. Michael and his brother Harris created Mikey'sRun.com to raise $1 million for other amputees by the time Harris runs the 2014 Boston Marathon. More than a thousand miles away from here, these two young brothers are bringing people together to support this Boston community the way their community came together to support Michael. And when this 13-year-old man was asked about his fellow amputees, he said this, First, they will be sad. They're losing something they will never get back. And that's scary. I was scared. But they'll be okay. They just don't know that yet. We might not always know it. We might not always see it or hear it on the news or even feel it in our daily lives. But I have faith that 
no matter what, class of 2013, you will be okay. And you will make sure our country is okay. I have faith because of that nine-year-old girl who went out and collected the change. Okay, I, want, I wanted to play more, but I think that's enough for um, to get the sense of you know what she's saying, and and show you um, something that I think is quite different, um, which I think actually was the same year. Let's see here. Uh, yeah. Oh no, this is 2011. So two years earlier than that, but not too long ago, Stephen Colbert. Uh, gave the um, commencement address. You all know who he is, right? Anybody not know who he is? If you don't, that's okay, but you probably do. Um, uh, he's going to take over for David Letterman, but used to be the um, the host of the satirical news program, The Colbert Report. But Stephen Colbert proper, the real man, uh, was um, uh, he's an alum of Northwestern, so he's going back to his alma mater to give uh, this address. And again, I'm skipping over... Uh, most of it and going to show you the ending and this one I think we'll watch the ending in full we have enough time and then we'll have about five minutes hopefully after that first a little bit of discussion okay board that has been trained to say congratulations But I am not here to talk about me. I am here to inspire you by talking about me. <laughs> Fair warning, we are now entering the meaningful part of the speech. Those of you who already have enough meaning in their lives can go do something else. Maybe try to remember where you parked the rental car. This spring I participated in a sailing race from South Carolina halfway across the Atlantic to Bermuda. In many ways, it was a beautiful journey. Stars wheeling overhead, whales breaching to starboard, which I actually think is over here. And in many other ways, it was horrible. We were filthy and tired. For seven days, none of us slept for more than three hours at a pop. Which remembers how Stalin broke his enemies and how infants break their parents. You'll find out. Now we eventually made it to Bermuda and after a few days there I came back home by plane and looking out the window I felt completely artificial. It felt so strange to fly over the same thousand miles of water that we just fought our way across inch by inch. And the ease of coming back somehow made it that much harder to explain to friends what it was like out there, what was lost and what was gained on that sublime and terrible trip. And in some ways, it feels just as artificial to fly back after 25 years to try to tell you how to navigate the waters ahead. Though it's tempting to think that I can, because like many people my age, I have fantasized about traveling back in time and giving advice to my younger self. To stop young Stephen on a street corner and say, break up with her, you idiot. Haven't you noticed that she's nicer to the dog? Or buy real estate. Or for God's sake, don't buy real estate. <laughs> Or under no circumstances should you wear white jeans, even on a cruise. Also, don't go on a cruise. Or wear sunscreen. Having a tan looks nice now, but in 20 years, your face will look like a catcher's mitt. But I doubt my younger self it comes back on. would even listen to me. I'm sure he'd say, there's no way you could be me. I have a chin. 
Plus, young me would never respect old me. He is in the theater. I am on TV. A total sellout. So to recap so far, I am going to try to give you, who for all intents and purposes are me 25 years ago, some advice that I probably won't get right and you probably won't listen to. Ready? Let's do this thing. Okay. You have been told to follow your dreams, but what if it's a stupid dream? <laughs> Colbert of 25 years ago lived at 2015 North Ridge with two men and three women in what I now know was a brothel. <laughs> he, he dreamed of living alone, well alone with his beard, in a large barren loft apartment, lots of blonde wood, wearing a kimono, with a futon on the floor and a samovar of tea constantly bubbling in the background doing Shakespeare in the street for homeless people. Today, I am a beardless suburban dad who lives in a house, wears no iron khakis, and makes Anthony Weiner jokes for a living. And I love it, because thankfully, dreams can change. If we'd all stuck with our first dream, the world would be overrun with cowboys and princesses. <laughs> so whatever your dream is right now, if you don't achieve it, you haven't failed, and you're not some loser. But just as importantly, and this is the part I may not get right and you may not listen to, if you do get your dream, you are not a winner. After I graduated from here, I moved down to Chicago to do improvisation. Now, there are very few rules to improv, but one of the things I was taught early on is that you are not the most important person in the scene. Everybody else is. And if everybody else is more important than you are, you will naturally pay attention to them and serve them. But the good news is, you're in the scene too. So hopefully to them, you're the most important person and they will serve you. No one is leading. You're all following the follower, serving the servant. You cannot win improv. And life is an improvisation. You have no idea what's gonna happen next and you are mostly just yanking ideas out of your ass as you go along. And like improv, you cannot win your life, even when it might look like you are winning. For instance, I have my own show, which I love doing, full of very talented people who are eager and ready to serve me. And that is great, but at its best, I am serving them just as hard. And together we serve a common idea, in this case the character Stephen Colbert, who it's clear isn't interested in serving anyone. And a sure sign that things are going well is that no one can remember whose ideas was whose, or who should get credit for what jokes, though naturally I get credit for them all. But if we should serve others, and together serve come some common goal or idea, for any one of you, what is that idea? And who are those people? In my experience, you will truly serve only what you love. Because service is love made visible. If you love friends, you will serve your friends. If you love community, you will serve your community. If you love money, 
you will serve your money. And if you love only yourself, you will serve only yourself. And you will have only yourself. So no winning. Instead, try to love others and serve others. And hopefully find those who will love and serve you in return. And in closing, I'd like to apologize for being predictable. Apparently, the New York Times has analyzed the hundreds of commencement speeches given so far in 2011 and found that the words love and service were two of the most used words. I can only hope that because of my speech today, the word brothel comes in a close third. <laughs> Thank you for the honor of addressing you, and congratulations to the class of 2011. Okay, um, we have five minutes to, to chat. Um, I have some thoughts, but I've been talking a ton. Anybody have any reactions to all that we've done, seen, talked about? Questions, disagreements, perplexities, connections, disconnections? You can be a cynic or something else. A lot better when you hear that because by giving the speech in a sense he's serving himself but he says he's not and yeah it, and it goes both ways i think it's a very good talk yeah and the he says uh uh what he's gonna do is um dang i thought i wrote it down is um to give them advice by um talking about himself and but I think actually what he's doing is he's gone inside of himself and understood um, uh, what is really going on, and therefore he's able to connect what's going inside of everyone else. Do you see what I'm saying? Um, and actually a good preacher does that. The best preachers um, understand what's really going inside themselves and therefore are preaching a sermon to themselves and that's how they're able to connect because everybody's basically the same. Um, all people across the board, human nature and sin are evenly distributed across time in all corners of, of, of the earth. So in, in serving himself, ironically, <laughs> in that respect, uh, he's able to connect. Yeah. Um, and so cynicism almost is refreshing. Yeah, Jack? Yeah, one thing that was dreadful about Oprah's thing was she she really gave them sort of a, 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 a very legalistic ultimatum. Yeah. Which is, you know, you, you have this light within you and you have this opportunity and power and you have these examples of right. you know, quadruple paralegics who played lacrosse. Right. And if that and if you can't get that done then you're a loser. I mean yeah. you're out of luck. Right. Right. I mean I mean she was she was offering no uh, no landscape. Yeah. Of, of of redemption grace, she was not acknowledging loss and failure, uh, or only as kind of a right. stepping stone. Yeah, failure is like uh, yeah, exactly. Well, failure is good because then it helps you, know, you become better. It helps you yeah. become better. It's just, I mean, Sometimes you lose all your limbs and you just lose all your limbs, right. and you become depressed and suicidal. Right. 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 I mean, that's like what she's brushing under the rug. And I want to say that 13-year-old, although it's cute and it was true for him. 
especially during that stage of life. And it's great that he's got this nonprofit. But when he, when she quotes him as saying, first they will be sad. I was sad and scared, but they will be okay. They just don't know it yet. Well, sometimes you're just sad and scared. Um, and that's at least, that's the silver lining. That's theology of glory. And because Oprah's used it as an example, she's therefore a theologian of glory. And doesn't even under, she's in, out of touch, it appears to be, with her own suffering. And therefore, there's a disconnect. Whereas Stephen Colbert, with a lot of humor and grace, is in touch with his own suffering. And um, therefore, is kind of self-deprecating. And it seems to connect. Um, but that's, so, sorry, I can keep going on for ages. Any more thoughts? Yeah. Oprah, in her speech, use Christian speak. Yeah, the light inside of you. Yeah. And and while Colbert did as well, the the servant came to serve. Yeah. yeah. He says the good news. Yeah. He even says that. Yeah. His was not as, he didn't use Christian speak to the level that she does, but his message was clearly more Christian. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. I, I noticed that if you watch, go watch the full thing. Uh, because she says at the very beginning, she frames the speech with that idea that Jack brought up with failure. But she uses plenty of like kind of Christian lingo without ever, uh, I think she says the word God once. But beyond that, it's sort of this sort of uh, like deism with like kind of Christian lingo, like light inside of you sort of uh, thing. Uh, the, the, the light shines in the darkness kind of. But that light isn't Jesus Christ. What is it? It's, it's the thing inside of yourself. But the theologian of glory will say, if you go inside of yourself, what you find is sin and cholesterol and darkness. <laughs> um, kind of starting point of different anthropologies or just how they, like I think Oprah said, you know, your greatest goal is to accomplish, your fully accomplish your the, the, your inner self. Or yeah, like maximize your well, humanity. It's like Hebrew. If you have a dream, it's probably going to be bad. Yeah, if we all followed our first dreams, we'd be princesses and cowboys. Yeah, the hope is in like what you're able to do for humanity, kind of, and if we all kind of get it together, the world would be a better place, sort of, you know. Yeah, and what you can do for yourself. It's yeah. Very selfish. Yeah. In what she delivered versus the, the contrast in Colbert about working to serve others. And then it will in turn serve, serve you. And that's great. I, I quoted this at a uh, wedding that I did. This line he says about improv, you're not the most important person in the scene. You're there to serve everyone else in the scene. But the good news is that you're in the scene for everyone else. And therefore, that means if people are doing it right, they'll be serving you. And so, uh, and I'll just end with this, that in his speech that's so great about no more winning, no more winners. You don't win in improv. And what I was trying to say in my homily at this wedding was that's the wedding vows. Your your spouse gives them to you and you give them to your spouse, but it's unconditional. They're each unidirectional, just as the, the characters on the stage of a good improv set are serving each other. Therefore, you don't even need to worry about, you don't even need to demand that you be served because you just inherently will be. Um, uh, so we should all take improv classes. If you were a historian <laughs> 50 years from now. Sorry? Uh, if I were a historian, yeah. 50 years yeah. from now, and we're looking back at these speeches, and then you know the rest of the lives of each of the speech makers. Yeah. 
Could you say what the people are really like from the speech they made? Oh, I have no idea, but people certainly can change. There's hope for Oprah to, um, as um, Faraday. Yeah. yeah, well, if they're saying it, I mean, you'd hope that they believe it's true. But, you know, maybe Oprah actually doesn't believe that's true, but she thinks it's a nice thing to say. I mean, that's very well possible. But she thinks it should be true, but um, it hasn't. Maybe it hasn't been true in her life, but she wishes it was, but just doesn't know the alternative. Um, well, clearly, by what she said there, she followed her inner self. Yeah, and she's a massive success story. But didn't receive, according to kind of reading between the lines, did not really receive any help from anywhere else. That's fascinating. Which, I'm Yeah, the own network is the Oprah Winfrey network. Yeah. It's all on our own. Yeah. Well, I hate to psychoanalyze an individual based on what I can see on the surface from what's in the media. There's much more going on. Um, but it gives a glimpse into the possible inner life of these two people. And again, what I'm trying to do is uh, make what's uh, so poignant in this book um, understandable um, for everyone. Uh, and I commend this to you. We sell it in the bookstore. On um, being a theologian of the cross by Gerhard Faraday. It looks like Ford with an E at the end. Um, this book basically changed my life. <laughs> I will go as far as saying that. I read a lot of other really good things before it that changed my life, but this theologically was the the the, the deal breaker. Um, 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 and without it, um, I'd be lost, I think. And there are other things like it, but this was the, um, the linchpin. Anyway, go in peace, love, and serve the Lord. I uh, hope you'll come back next week for part two, anti-commencement speeches. We'll probably be listening to Conan O'Brien and what I think is the very best commencement speech ever.